Amen. If you have your copy of God's Word this morning, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. And today we'll be looking at verses 27 through 44. Matthew 27. If you found your way there, I'll invite you to stand with me and we'll read God's Word together this morning. Matthew 27, beginning in verses uh, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots, and sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put the charge against him, which, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. Father, I ask now, as I have done my work in preparation this week, Lord, that you would do your work that I would not be in your way, that nothing I say would be unprofitable, but that everything that I say would be beneficial for the ones who are here. Lord, we know that no one is here by accident this morning. I don't know situations. I don't know hearts. I don't know what needs to be heard, what needs to be challenged, what needs to be comforted, but you know. And Lord, in your sovereign plan, you have appointed this text for this Lord's Day to be preached for a reason. And we pray that you would show us what that reason is. I pray that you would help me to preach this text beyond my ability so that you receive the glory. And it's in your son's name that I ask for this. Amen. You may be seated. There's a lot in this passage. This is a, a very large text. Uh, so obviously I won't be able to unpack all of this. But there are a few things that really came out in my study this week that I want to share with you. As someone who has grown up in church, who has uh, heard this story many times, of course we have four gospel accounts uh, that recount this story, um, there were some things that I learned that I didn't know before. And so uh, if you've never heard this story about Jesus, then uh, we can talk more, and there's a lot more I'd like to share with you about that. But if you have heard it, I hope that maybe today 
we'll be able to shed some light on some things that will encourage your heart and really show you um, the power of God uh, displayed in his word here. The title of the message this morning is Three Keys to Suffering Well. Three Keys to Suffering Well. And I can give, I can give you from this. We don't really have time to go into all but there are three keys that I think we see Jesus demonstrate here that we can learn from him and that we can use even in our own suffering. None of us in here, as far as I'm aware, have had to be crucified uh, in a literal sense, although uh, some Christians have, and even today in some parts of the world that does still happen uh, in one way or another. But we all experience suffering. We've talked about this a lot. I don't know if you've noticed, but there is a theme in Matthew of Jesus as the suffering servant because he was not the Messiah that they were expecting, but he was the one that God had chosen. And so there's a lot that we can learn about suffering from the Gospel of Matthew and from the life of Jesus. Contrary to the Gospel that's preached in many churches today, and especially on TV, uh, God's desire is not always for you to be comfortable and, and happy. That's not how the world actually works. We all know that because we live in this world, but sometimes we watch something that convinces us uh, otherwise. But if the perfect sinless son of God had to suffer, then you're going to have to suffer. Uh, that's just the way of the world. This world is cursed by sin. There will be one day a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem, as we just sung about, with Jesus ruling and reigning in person at that time, uh, where these issues that bring us suffering will no longer be. That's part of the good news. Uh, if you need some hope this morning, consider uh, the New Jerusalem. So Jesus gives us three keys here, but I want to give you something that's going to help us understand this text. One of the things that we believe uh, in this church is that uh, everything that is written in the Bible is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, even down to the actual grammar of the text. So the Bible doesn't just contain God's truth. Every word of it is God's truth. And the reason why it is written in the way that it's written is because the Holy Spirit wanted it to be written that way. And so it's important to look at uh, the way that sentences are phrased or why was a certain word chosen and not another word. All of these things have a reason. And so as we are looking at the text, we want to try to understand what the Lord is saying here, not just, not just to get the meaning out of it, but to actually understand the text itself. So there's a literary device that I want you to be familiar with today as we look at this text, and it's irony. Irony is something that a lot of younger people, uh, a lot of the younger people in our country don't understand literary devices like irony and satire and these kind of things. It's why when they see the Babylon Bee, if you're familiar with that, and they talk about CNN buying a giant washing machine to spin their news in, they actually get sued over that because somebody somewhere believes that there's really a washing machine for news. That's called satire and it's not real. Uh, and it's designed to make fun of somebody who actually would believe that, which proves why it's necessary to use things like satire. The Bible contains satire in it, but in this text in particular, it contains irony. So what is irony? Irony is when you make a statement about something in order to emphasize the opposite reality of that thing. As soon as I was thinking about this, I thought, what's an example that people might be familiar with? And there was a news story this last week that was going around that you might be familiar with of a man in South Carolina who strangled a woman on his property and 
then ha had a cardiac arrest and died while he was burying the woman in his yard. And so the, the police were called, hey, there's a man laying in his yard, and they go to investigate it, and they find this man dead, and he's next to this pit that he dug to bury the woman that he just strangled. That's irony. The reason why it's irony is because the truth is, so for some reason in his mind, this woman was doing something to interrupt his life, and so he was going to enjoy his life more by eliminating this woman from the picture and burying her, and in the process, he actually lost his own life. So his life was actually worse and not better from him killing and burying this woman. That's irony. There are three really big ironies in this text that I want us to look at, and it helps us understand who Jesus is by stating uh, the opposite in the reality. And so the first thing that I want you to see in the text today is the irony of his attire. The irony of, of his attire. Look at verses 27 through 35 with me again. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him, and they took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. So I want to point out the irony of his attire here. Now, if you've grown up in church, you've heard about the robe that they put on him and the crown of thorns and the reed. But let, let's talk about what those things mean. The first thing I want you to notice there is that his clothing changed. So what, what is the context here? It talks about this praetorium and, and uh, these Roman cohorts. A Roman cohort is about a tenth of a legion, so it's approximately 600 men. So we're not talking about a handful of soldiers here. We're talking about a group of about 600 men that are basically making sport out of Jesus here. They're making fun of him. So when it talks about them smacking him, spitting on him, you're talking about somewhere around 600 men doing this. This isn't just a few guys beating Jesus up. This is a small army that is basically having fun with him. They knew they weren't allowed to kill him under Roman law, but there was no Roman law that said they couldn't torture him or mock him or shame him. Also notice in your text there, it says that it was a scarlet robe that was put on him. So that's red. Now, most of the time we think of a purple robe. The reason why we think of a purple robe is because purple is the color of royalty. But they didn't have a purple robe available. The closest they had was a Roman military cloak, which was red in color, which is the reason why it's a scarlet robe. So they found this uh, cloak of a high-ranking Roman officer and put that on him because that was the closest that they could get uh, to doing that. The same thing with the crown of thorns. Uh, Caesar, the Olympians, these others would wear these, uh, these crown, uh, this crown with leaves as a sign of their victory or their authority. And the thorn bush nearby was the closest approximation that they could have to doing this. And so they made him a crown of thorns. And the same thing with the scepter. The scepter was a symbol of uh, ruling. It was a symbol of authority, of judgment. And they replaced it with a reed. So they basically grabbed what they had nearby to kind of makeshift this costume for Jesus so that they could make fun of him. We see his clothing was changed there. And then we see that his condemnation was carried. His condemnation. So the cross, the way that it would work is that 
they had a hole that they would drop the top post down into, and then they had the cross beam would be carried. So when Jesus is carrying his cross, he wasn't carrying a full cross. He's only carrying the top beam, which weighs about 200 pounds, um, that he would have had to carry by himself after he's been beaten severely and tortured by these other soldiers. And it's interesting that this man, uh, Simon, I learned some things about him that I, that I didn't know that are really incredible. Um, he's from Cyrene, which is North Africa. So he was, uh, it's modern day Libya. He was visiting probably for Passover, uh, the Passover celebration. And so he's just a guy standing on the sidelines in town. And it says that, that they um, pressed him into service or they conscripted him. So because Israel is, a, is an occupied Roman country, then the Romans, uh, all they have to do is they just take the flight of their spear and they tap on a citizen. That citizen has to do whatever they say, whether that's carry their stuff, uh, wash their clothes, give them some food, give them a place to stay. They were able um, to do that. Uh, you'll notice, for instance, in our documents in the United States, there's a specific provision that does not allow the military to do that. Um, they actually can't come and make you uh, give them a place to stay in your home anymore as an American citizen. So we've learned some things uh, since the Roman Empire. And so they commissioned him and said, you're going to carry this, this cross now. And there, it's not up for discussion because he could either do that or be killed. So he's conscripted in doing that. But it's interesting that this isn't the only place that Simon's mentioned. Paul talks about Simon, about his sons, and Mark actually talks about Simon. If you look in the Gospel of Mark, he says, Simon, who was the father of Alexander and Rufus, and Mark was writing his gospel in Rome, which means apparently the church in Rome knew Alexander and Rufus personally. And they said, hey, you guys know Alexander and Rufus? This Simon that carried Jesus' cross was their dad, which indicates that Simon actually became a believer in Jesus uh, in this process and raised his family that way. Paul goes even so far in Romans to say, greet Alexander and Rufus and their mother, who is my mother also. In other words, apparently Simon's wife actually took care of Paul on one of his missionary journeys. And so there's this moment here that seems like a coincidence where Simon is called, and yet in the sovereign plan of God, God had a plan for Simon's whole family, even for his sons and his wife, to minister to the apostle Paul in his missionary journey. And so not only was he assisting Jesus by carrying his cross, but he was assisting the whole gospel into going into the world. How amazing would it be, and some of us know what this is like, to just be called out of nowhere to go and serve God. Amos said he was out dressing some fig trees when the Lord called him. He wasn't in Bible college. He was just a gardener. Uh, Adam was a gardener too. And so there's a lot of us that are just doing ordinary things, and sometimes the Lord uh, gives us a task that has far-reaching consequences that we really don't understand. And we just have to do it in the moment, and then the Lord will work it out. So his clothing was changed, his condemnation was carried, and his consciousness continued. What does it mean that his consciousness was continued? The wine with gall that they give him here, uh, it's basically a painkiller. It's something that uh, they would mix frankincense in. And frankincense was used as a perfume, but it was also used as uh, a medication that had some hallucinogenic properties. And so... The wealthy Jewish women, what they would do is they would mix up this drink for Jewish men that were going to be crucified, and they would give it to them on their way to be crucified as a painkiller to help them uh, be able to endure the pain of crucifixion, and it would help them hold still while they were being nailed to the cross. Jesus tasted this and refused it because 
Jesus wanted to take all of your pain. And he wanted to be conscious while he was doing it. And he wasn't looking for a way out. He had a way out. He could have called angels down at this very moment and wiped out the entire Roman Empire. But he wouldn't even take a because he wanted to suffer all of your punishment. When he said it is finished, he did. it wasn't 99% finished. It was 100% finished because he did everything that was required for your salvation on the cross. He suffered all of it. So what's the irony here of his attire? When we think about this clothing, here's the irony. The irony is thinking that Jesus endured more shame and weakness by taking on the soldier's mocking clothing than he did by taking on a human nature. They thought that they were shaming him by putting some clothes on him, but he already shamed himself when he took on the human body. When he, when he set aside the glory that he had with the Father to come into a frail, broken world, even though his human nature was perfect, the Bible says he was tempted every way that you were, he, he was suffered, in every way that you were, he can sympathize with your weaknesses. So they thought that they were going to make him weaker by clothing him and mocking him when they don't understand that he had already made himself infinitely weaker by even being born as a baby. And that his entire life, all he had done was humble himself. So what's the key here? What, what, what do we learn from this? You can't be ashamed and totally humble at the same time. They tried to shame Jesus, but they couldn't. You can't shame someone who's already put themselves already at the bottom. You can't lower that person any more than they've been lowered. And so all the mocking and all the clothing and all the, the, the beating him and, and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and all these kind of things, he already gave up the real thing when he was incarnated. If he wanted to hear, Hail, Jesus, King of the Jews, he could have stayed in heaven, and the angels would have told him all day long every day. And they would have meant it. If he wanted to have glorious clothing, he could have stayed with the Father and not even come to the earth to begin with and stayed in his glorious divine state alone and not even taken on a human nature. If that's what he really wanted. But apparently, it glorified God, it pleased God to crush him for you and me. That's why he did this. So when you're suffering, how, what's a key to suffering well? A key to suffering well is humbling yourself. Humbling yourself, thinking so little of yourself in light of what it is that God's called you to do that you can't be ashamed. Because nobody can think less of you than you do. Jesus made himself lower than anyone. He demonstrated with the disciples when he washed his feet. In the same way that I'm serving you, you should serve one another. Who, who was the least person in the room there? Jesus made himself the least person in the room there. He always makes himself the least person. So you can't make him less than he makes himself. And if we follow him in that, we'll be able to suffer well. How, how, how do the martyrs have the strength to endure the suffering that they do? It's because they think a whole lot more about Jesus than they do about themselves. And it's because they're more concerned about the soul of the person that is killing them than they are about their own soul. Just like the song we sang, Jesus is letting the soldiers nail him down so that he can save them. 
they can't shame him because he's already been ashamed. The second irony I want you to see in our text this morning is the irony of his attribution. The irony of his attribution. Look at verse 36. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So there's an irony here, and I want let's let's look at what the text is saying here, and then let's see if you can point out the irony while I'm explaining this. The first thing is the charge affixed. So this is a placard that has a legal charge on it. So everybody that was crucified had this so that the public knew why this person was being crucified. The number one thing that the that the Romans crucified people for was insurrection or rebelling against the government, um, similar to what China does today, by the way. Um, that's the number one reason why they end up executing people or making uh, public spectacles of people is rebelling against the government. And so you, you don't know to not do what that person did if you don't understand what they did. And so the Romans labeled the people and said, this is what they did. They said something against Caesar or they didn't pay their taxes or they didn't, they robbed someone or they did whatever the case may be. And if you do like this person, you will be like this person. We will do the same thing to you. Uh, we used to do that with capital punishment in this country when we would do public hangings and, and uh, firing squads and things like that. This person is a murderer. This person is about to be shot by 10 people with guns until they die. If you murder somebody, this is going to happen to you too. They used to be the kind of deterrent that we used for violent crimes and things like that was to make a public spectacle of someone so that others would not follow uh, in their path. And so even when they would carry their cross, they would make sure that they took the longest route possible through the city. So it wasn't just a straight shot because part of the whole point is for everybody to see this is what we do with these kind of people. So the charge was affixed to him. He had this placard probably either hung around his neck while he's carrying the cross or maybe even attached to the cross. And it's interesting because it says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, if you read one of the other Gospels, it shows that there was actually an argument between the Jewish leaders and Pilate about this because they said, we want you to change the sign to say, he said that he's the king of the Jews, not that he is the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, I wrote what I wrote. He basically told him to deal with it. And so the Jewish leaders had told Pilate in another place that they had no king but Caesar. When he had asked, is, do you have, is, is he the king of the Jews? They had said, well, we have no king but Caesar. And if you don't crucify him, you're not Caesar's friend. So they had aligned themselves with this occupying Roman government that was opposed to God, that was opposed to everything because they were more concerned about political power, they were more concerned about wealth, they were more concerned about their reputation than they were about actually obeying God, which is what Jesus had pointed out every time he had interacted with them. And so this charge, this official charge was placed on him where they accused him of being the king of the Jews. You might be starting to see the irony uh, develop now. This is how powerful Jesus is. Jesus was able to convert the cross, which is the object of shame in the Roman Empire, into a sign of his dominion. That's how powerful he is. Uh, when you see a cross throughout history placed somewhere, 
that's essentially a, a flag. Like if you want to, if you travel around and you go to the courthouse or you go to somewhere, maybe even your own house, and you see an American flag, what you what you're saying is this is under the the, the authority of the American government. This is claimed territory by America. When we went to the moon and we planted a flag there, we're we're saying this part belongs to America of the moon. We're planting our flag there. Jesus took the most shameful symbol that was reserved for the worst criminals that is supposed to be uh, something that no one would ever want to be associated with and embraced it and now uses that to exercise dominion in the world. Because wherever you see a cross now, that is also a place that Jesus is claiming as his own. He is continuing to expand his kingdom today through us. Now, I'm not saying that means you have to go out and buy a necklace with a cross on it or you have to have a Christian flag in your yard. You can do those things if you want to. But it's really more about understanding what it means. The, re the reality is, is uh, God has placed his sign on you when you were baptized. You were circumcised in your heart and you were publicly baptized as a sign of, I, I'm now marked by God. I have identified myself with Jesus. I belong to him. Now, if you want to wear a cross so that people that didn't see you get baptized remember that, then maybe that is a good reminder. But that is how, that is how we uh, proclaim Jesus through our baptism. It's a public profession of saying, I, I belong to him. I have been bought with a prize. So I'm not my own. And so it's ironic that as they affix this charge to Jesus of being the king of the Jews, and they cause him to carry this cross beam that is a sign of his shame, that this ends up becoming the sign of his rule. Only God can do that. He can take a sign of defeat and make it a sign of victory. Also look at the cross alternated here. This is something interesting. I had never thought about this before until I studied this this week. Do you notice that earlier the disciples were always fighting over who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God? And James and John fought over who was going to sit at his right and his left. And their mother even came and said, you know, can my sons be at your right and your left in your kingdom? And his answer was, that's not, that's not for me to decide. Well, look at who's at his right and his left now. It's the robbers. It's not James and John. And why is that? Because the scripture says that he was going to be numbered with the transgressors. Because those robbers are the kind of people that Jesus died for. Just like some of us. And you might sit here today and say, well, I'm not a robber. I'm not an insurrectionist. That, that, that's a recent word in our history, isn't it? Nobody heard about that until about a year ago. And then that word came back. But you might say, I'm not an insurrectionist. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen anything from anybody. But remember, the first key is don't think too highly of yourself. Because according to God's law, you are. According to God's law, we are murderers. We are adulterers. We are thieves. We are blasphemers. We're all those things. We're just like those robbers. We're not any better than they were. And yet Jesus was numbered among them. Because he didn't think he was too good to be on the cross with some robbers. Another thing that you might not have noticed before is that this crucifixion was already planned before Pilate decided to crucify Jesus. How do we know that? Well, there were three crosses prepared 
Remember, Jesus was only accused a short time before, so this execution was already scheduled. And these two robbers, the word robber there, or insurrectionist, is the same rob uh, word that was used for Barabbas. Remember, they bought, brought Barabbas out a couple weeks ago, and they said, uh, Bar here's Barabbas, this criminal, and here's Jesus. I'll release one of them to you. Which one do you want to go free? And they said, we want Barabbas. Well, what should I do with Jesus? Crucify him. Well, Pilate didn't say, well, I don't have that on the schedule of crucifixions for Friday. He said, well, if I'm going to release Barabbas, then somebody can take his place on his cross. Because Barabbas, being the leader of the insurrectionists, would have been in the center cross, and his associates in the insurrection with him would have been on either side of him being crucified. Which means even in Jesus' death at that time, he took the place of Barabbas. Here's something else. Jesus is God's son. The word Barabbas, the name Barabbas means the son of the father. That's what Barabbas means. So Jesus took the place of the sons of men as the son of God on the cross for their salvation. Now somebody explained to me how it's an accident that Barabbas' name means what it means and that in all of history he just happened to be the one that Jesus swaps places with on the cross. You start seeing details like that and you realize there is a God in heaven that has everything planned out. None of this is by accident. So we see the charge affixed to him. We see this cross being alternated where he's actually literally taking the place of a criminal on this cross. And then we see the crowd aggravated. Notice the accusation that they bring against him. You said that you're going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now remember, this is part of the conversation that he was having more in private. So how did all these people know about it? Well, again, remember the Jewish leaders were stirring it all up. So if you want to make a Jewish person really angry, destroy the temple. God knows that, by the way, because he did it in AD 70. But before that, the accusation of Jesus said he's going to destroy the temple, that's a really good way to make a lot of Jewish people angry, is for him to do that. And if you want to talk about him being opposed to Israel and opposed to the growth of Israel, accuse him of doing something to the temple, of defiling the temple. The last time somebody tried to defile the temple, when the Romans did it, we ended up with Hanukkah, where the Jews rose up in a rebellion and drove the Romans out of the temple and re-cleansed the temple. So they get pretty angry when you mess with the temple, and so the Jewish leaders knew this is the way to get people stirred up against Jesus. This is the guy that said he was going to destroy the temple in three days and that he could rebuild it. How crazy is that? Of course, we know the disciples explain in the Gospels that Jesus was talking about his body, which was being destroyed in front of them. And so he was fulfilling what he actually said. That's irony too, by the way. The Jewish leaders challenge him here, and the people challenge him to come down from the cross. And they're all mocking him here. Because they think that if he can come down from the cross, that that will really prove that he's God, as if he didn't raise Lazarus from the dead already as if he hasn't healed the blind and the lame and the sick, as if he hasn't raised little children from the dead or cleansed the lepers or taught the law from the time that he was a child, as if there wasn't enough proof, they said, well, now if you can come down off the cross, we'll believe you. Now, remember in the story of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man said, let me go tell my family so that they don't end up in hell like I am. And Jesus said, even if someone rose from the dead to tell them, they still wouldn't believe. And Jesus knows this. So, are they right? 
maybe maybe you're a skeptic here today and you're an unbeliever and you might think, well, that would be a pretty good evidence. And why should we believe that Jesus actually had any kind of power if he's sitting here submissive to the Romans, nailed to a cross? Why would we assume in any of that that Jesus actually has any real power or that he is who he said he is? That's part of the irony in the text. The irony here is realizing that the servants of an emperor, of the Roman emperor, believe that Jesus is only the king of the Jews. That's the irony. They think that they're mocking him by putting a sign that he's the king of the Jews, but they don't realize that he's the king of Caesar. And so they think that they're being funny, but on a cosmic scale, it's it's very funny in a sense, or silly to God, that they think that, that they're ascribing some kind of big label to him. Like if he was the king of Jews, that it would be a big deal. When the reality is he's the king of everything. He's the king of the Romans. And now, according to what we're going to read in a few weeks, he's the king of every nation, of all kings. He's the king of America right now. Everything is under his rule and his reign today. And it, all, and it already was from the beginning because everything that was made was made by him. Think about the irony of the fact that they're telling him, if you are able to, to detach yourself from this cross and come down, we'll believe in you. The irony of the fact that the only reason anything is held together in the world is because he holds it together. So they're thinking if you can separate yourself from the cross, then that's proving something, not realizing that the only reason why the atoms in their body even hold together is because Jesus says, because he holds it together. It would be really powerful if you came off the cross, Jesus. No, it would be really powerful if Jesus decided you didn't exist anymore. And then you're all gone. And you have no say in it. That would be really powerful. What would be really powerful is if Jesus decided that you should be on the cross instead and you just switch places. That would be really powerful. All of those things are in his ability to do that. And yet still, he chose to remain on the cross. He said clearly, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down freely. They did not nail him to the cross against his will, and he was not being held on the cross against his will. He chose to do that. It was his decision to do that. No one forced him to do anything. That's real power. When you, when you think about the word meekness, it's the idea of strength under control. Jesus was self-controlled enough to let somebody nail him to a cross. Now, I don't know about you. I don't have that level of self-control. I'm not going to just lay there and take that if that happens to me. But Jesus did. That is how much self-control he had. And he made the choice. So think about that. We talk about how the good news is that Jesus took our suffering for us. That he took on the punishment of our sins. Think about his willingness in doing that. We forget that sometimes. This, is, this wasn't a job that he had to do. This wasn't a task that he was given. He chose to do it because he loves you. Nobody made him do it. If I, want, if I want something good to happen and I'm a boss, I can, I can tell somebody that, that I'm the boss of to go do it and the thing will happen. Je Jesus could have just done it out of obedience. And, and to be clear, he was obedient. He was perfectly obedient. But it wasn't just obedience. It was love. And sometimes we forget that. that Jesus didn't die on the cross for you so that he could check a box off in the sovereign plan of God. He died on the cross for you because he wanted a relationship with you. Because he wants you to be with him. He has a desire 
for friendship and for fellowship with you, with you, with me. Now, why? I don't know. I'm not that good company sometimes. You can ask my wife. Sometimes I'm not very good company. But for some reason, Jesus felt like he could do something with me. And he didn't just die on the cross for me because God made him. He did it because he cares about me. He knows me. He doesn't just know churches or countries or families. He knows you as a person and chose you and suffered for you. We're not talking about a general suffering of like, I'll just take it, just lay it all on. It's no, for them and for them and for them and for them and for them. He says, my sheep hear me and they know my voice. He said he was the great shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. He knows who his sheep are. And if you're in Christ this morning, he loves you and died for you. Not for a generic somebody, for you. And so it's ironic to think that it would be a praise to call him the king of the Jews only when he is the king of the universe, when he is the king of kings. So what's the key that we can learn here from Jesus? The key is, is that in our lives, we need to pursue a calling that can be mocked, but not denied. They could mock Jesus, but they couldn't deny who he was. It was so evident that even Pilate, a pagan, said, he's the king of the Jews. That's what I'm putting on the sign. It is what it is. We need to know that we're following God and our calling. And I'm not talking about being a pastor. I'm talking about whatever the situation that you have in your life. If you're a parent, part of your calling is being a parent. If you're a church member, part of your calling is to your church. If you're a Christian, part of your calling is to sharing the gospel in whatever way that God has gifted you to do that. Whatever your calling is, your vocation is, you should be doing that in such a way that people can mock you, but they can't deny you. You ever met somebody like that? That's like, they're so evangelistic that it's like, this person's kind of crazy sometimes about telling people about Jesus, but I would never say that they're not really a Christian because they just seem so sold out that even if they're a little weird, you got to give them credit. They really believe this stuff. I've met people like that where even their lost friends will say, hey, I'm not a Christian, but I know that dude is because you'd have to be crazy to do the kind of stuff that he does or to live the way that he does or to say the kind of things that he says or to make the decisions that he makes. You would have to be crazy uh, to, to believe that he wasn't a Christian and would actually do all that kind of stuff. Because around here, everybody can say they're a Christian, but it's what you do and not what you say that is really evidence is whether you believe it or not. And so we can all think of people that say they're Christians and it's kind of like, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. And then you can think of other people where you're like, if I know that anybody's saved, this person's saved. I can't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure based on this person's commitment to Christ. So even if they didn't think he was the king of the Jews, they're like, he thinks he's the king of the Jews. And all these other people think that he's the king of the Jews. And even pagan, pagan Pilate thinks that he's the king of the Jews. So I don't know, you know, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's probably a duck. It kind of works the same thing with Christianity. And so that's one of the keys to our suffering. We're going to suffer in this life, but the question is, are people doubting your faith and your suffering? Your suffering will test whether you have real faith or not. It'll test whether you're going to walk away or not. It's also part of the reason why God gives that to us, because it actually strengthens your assurance. When you go through a time of suffering and you come out the other side victorious, it should give you assurance that, you know what, it was Christ in me that helped me to endure that suffering, which 
tells me that the Holy Spirit is with me. So we saw the irony of his attire and the irony of his attribution. And finally, I want you to see the irony of his authority. Look at verses 41 through 44 with me. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. And so they listed this criteria for him, for his authority. If you want to prove your authority, come down off, off the cross. If you want to prove that you're the son of, of God, then just stop all this. If God can do anything, then why, why would you sit here and take this if you really have authority? Why would you do it? It doesn't make sense to them. And it doesn't make sense to most of the people that you know. Why would Jesus, like, why would anybody go through all of this for anybody else? Because nobody cares about anybody other than themselves enough to do what Jesus did, which is why Jesus had to be the one to do it. And there's many people today that you will talk to that will say, I can't be a Christian because this stuff doesn't make sense. Because Paul said that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's always going to be foolishness to those who are perishing because the natural man cannot understand spiritual things because they are spiritually discerned. So even if I'm talking about this stuff today and you're thinking, this is just some weird nonsense that doesn't make sense, it might be because you're not saved this morning. That might be the problem. Uh, it could just be because I'm not a good preacher and that might be the problem too. But I hope that I can be clear enough that I'm laying out the truth there and whether or not you're able to understand it is ultimately between you and God. This is our responsibility, not to convert other people. We can't do that. It's to give them the truth and let the Spirit do what He's going to do. So they listed out all this criteria, and MacArthur explains this well. He says, Jesus was not their kind of Messiah, and they had no desire to follow him in the way he demanded. They did not want to be made righteous, but successful. They did not want to be cleansed, but selfishly satisfied. They did not want to give up anything for God, but wanted from him only the worldly material advantages they cherished. Why did they want him to come? They, they, they wanted him to come down from the cross. They really did. Because... If the Romans can nail him to the cross and he can just say nope and get down off the cross, then he can overthrow Rome. And that's what they really want. They really want a political messiah that can come in and overthrow the Roman Empire and say, hey, Israel's back in control. We're the strong nation now. We've got the temple. We've got the law. We've got our own king and messiah now. And we don't have to listen to you anymore. That's what they really wanted. And if Jesus would have offered them that, he wouldn't have been on that cross. They would have gotten behind him. When he came in at the, the triumphal entry and Hosanna to the son of David and everybody's excited, why? Because the king's getting ready to ride in and take over the Romans. Again, think about the irony of that. The irony is that they are trying to get Jesus to save himself instead of all of God's elect. They think it would be a really big deal for a person to save themselves not understanding how many people he's actually saving by doing what he did. They've, they've vastly underestimated his power because they think this would really be something great that would really prove that you have God's salvation if you could save yourself from crucifixion. And what they didn't realize is, is he was saving a countless number of people that we can't even know, all of them from their eternal punishment. He could, have, he could have overthrown the Romans right then for a time. He could have done that. 
but he's overthrown sin for eternity. Your sin is completely paid today in Christ. If you are trusting in Christ, the amount of sin debt that you owe to God is zero. The amount of righteousness that you have in your standing with God is equal to Jesus Christ. You are a joint heir with him. You have received an inheritance from him. Not only are you guiltless before God, but you are blessed and favored by God because he sees you as his son who took his place for you. And so how ironic is it to think that one man saving himself would prove anything? And of course, we'll see in a few weeks with the resurrection that it starts to become a little more clear to them when he realizes, is it easier to come off the cross or is it easier to come out of the grave? It's a lot easier to come off the cross because no one can come out of the grave unless God brings them out of the grave. So what's the key here? They're mocking Jesus. They're questioning his sonship. They're questioning his authority. The key is find your peace in God's approval and not man's. Jesus didn't need any of them to believe him because he knew that he was approved by God. He knew that God had sent him on this mission to do this and that he was being obedient. And even if everybody, even the, even the robbers, these other guys got crucified. They can barely breathe and they're wanting to use their last breaths to mock Jesus. How wicked do you have to be to do something like that? And so the people passing by that are, that are getting ready to go buy some groceries are making fun of him. The soldiers are making fun of him. The, even these other actual criminals are sitting here making fun of him. Everybody's making fun of him. Does that slow him down? No. Does that stop him? No. Does he respond in anger like we would? I don't know about you, but if I can call down angels from heaven, I probably would have done it a long time ago at this point. None of these people would be around anymore. I'd just be like, I'm done with all of you. And yet he sits there. And remember, he's even praying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Think about, think about the, the kind of person that you have to be to think, even think a thought like that in the midst of all of this. Of, of desiring forgiveness for these wicked people that are cursing you for no reason, that have no idea who you really are. And our pride wants to well up and, well, if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't be doing this. How dare you do this to me? That's, that's our nature. And yet for him, it says he's silent and he just sits there and takes it because he knew that he was approved by God and that was enough. That was enough for him. And the key that you need to have in the suffering in your life this morning is that God's approval has to be enough for you. If everybody else thinks you're wrong, if everybody else thinks you're crazy, if everybody else thinks that, you know, well, why are you praying for healing about that? Or why, you know, why are you going to, to a church like that? Or why are you reading your Bible when it's a really old book? Or all the whys that they want to ask you and mock you and mock your faith and mock you trusting in God and believing in God. You don't have to answer any of those people. An angry family member, a co-worker that wants to make fun of you for being a Christian, you don't have to answer that person. The scripture says don't answer a fool according to their folly. You don't have to answer them. You can just say, you know what? I, I'm not going to have to stand before you. I'm worried about what he thinks. And if he says that I'm okay, then I'm not concerned about it. Jesus knew that he was approved by God and that was enough for him. So in conclusion, how, how are you going to use these keys? I have three questions that I want you to ask yourself. And in just a moment, we're going to take a, a, a moment of silence before we go to the table. And I want you to think about these three questions this morning. The first question is, 
Am I thinking too highly of myself today? It's a question we need to ask ourselves regularly. Am I thinking too highly of myself today? The second question is, do I know what my calling is today? Do I know what my calling is today? And the third question is, is God's approval enough for me today? Is God's approval enough for me today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, what a blessing we have to have an example in Christ. Lord, that we don't just have your law that tells us what to do, but we have your son who has done it, who has perfectly kept all of your law, who has obeyed all of your commandments, who has done everything that is right. And Lord, we, we have this treasure chest in your word of stories and explanations and teaching and, and revelation that we can read, Lord, that, that you've given to us an example in Christ. And Lord, we know this morning that we fall far short of that example, that there's, there's no way that we can truly be like him in the way that he is. And yet, we know that you've called us to holiness and that your spirit in us can empower us to walk in obedience. And so, Lord, as we consider these things, we don't want to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Your word says that we shouldn't. When we think about Jesus and how humble he was, Lord, it just exposes our pride. It shows us no matter how spiritual we think we are or, or how we're able to show other people, Lord, if we really examine ourselves, we just see that we're so far off from the humility of Jesus. But, Lord, we just need to esteem others more than ourselves today. We need to esteem you more and what you want more than what we want. Father, with our calling, we know that you've put all of us in a certain situation in our lives, in our families, in our workplace, and our uh, even in our physical bodies with our health and the different things that we have, Lord, and there's things that you've called us to be obedient to. Help us to see what those are. Help us not to overlook the small things in our lives that you've called us to so that we can be more obedient to you this week than we ever have. And not be obedient out of compulsion, Lord, but have the obedience that Jesus had on the cross out of love, that we wouldn't just obey you, but that we would love you. And Father, we thank you that even when we do things that you don't approve of, that our approval is not based on our works, that our approval is based on Jesus' works. And so, Lord, we thank you that Jesus is enough today, that we are secure in him because today he's done everything right. He's done everything perfectly. He has not sinned. And, Lord, we come to you on his merits and on his righteousness and on his works and not on ours. And if there's someone here this morning, Lord, that's never done that, I pray that right now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that they would let go of themselves and stop worshiping themselves and they would surrender their life to you. They would be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and have peace with you today. In Jesus' name.